Chapter 27 Marina's scream is loud, reverberating throughout the apartment. Startled awake, I squeeze my way out of the armchair coffin bed. Andre's got a bad fever, says Vasya, looking helpless. His seven-year-old son is shivering under the covers. We have to put him in a bath, I say. There's no hot water, says Marina. Seeing my bewildered expression, Marina clarifies, today is Saturday. We get hot water only on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'll have Mama make some hot water on the stove. Maria checks the boy's thermometer again. It's too high, she says. Can't you call an ambulance, I ask. It take forever to come, says Marina. We need to do something now. I will call some friends and see who has a fever reducer or an antibiotic. Marina gets on the phone. While she is finding a neighbor who has some medication, Vasya is looking out the front window and down the street. A black RAF minivan is parked on the corner. Vasya stares at the vehicle, hesitant and apprehensive. So I say, Vasya, I'll go pick up the medicine. No, I'll go. You stay with Marina and the kids. All right. Thank you, my friend. Use the back door. Marina instructs me on the military-like mission. Building 1701, entrance 3, fourth floor. First apartment on your left. His name is Kolya. He's expecting you. I put my clothes on, grab my coat, and hurry out. It's a dark black night. I walk down the empty streets lined with Soviet-era bunker-style apartment towers that are virtually indistinguishable from one another. I almost rush by my target, but notice a weather-worn sign for building 1701 and hurry up to the fourth floor. I knock on the door of the first apartment on the left and a dog starts barking behind the door. Abruptly, the door opens just a crack. I see a sliver of a man's face. Are you the English, says the man. No, I'm the American, I say. Are you Kolya? No, I'm Misha. Kolya is sick. Here's the medication. Goodbye. Thank you. He shuts the door silently. I hurry outside and retrace my steps along the dark, desolate street. Nothing is moving and no one is in sight. When I get to the lone street lamp at the corner of Vazia's block, I see three black cars parked near the black minivan, press on anyway. As I move quickly along the sidewalk to the back of Vasya's building, a dozen men jump out of nowhere and quickly surround me from all sides. All I know how to defend myself is to get into a crouched boxing position. But just as I do, someone runs up behind me and smashes me on the back of the head with a police baton. I hit the ground like a sack of wet cement. After that, I don't remember much except that all the men started kicking and punching me. I recognize a couple of those guys as the same thugs who had brutalized Vasya in the men's room at the birthday party. Not a word is spoken as they continue to beat me up. All I can think of is that they are going to kill me if I don't do something fast and drastic. My head is bleeding. My stomach is aching from their blows. Suddenly I start coughing dramatically and pretend that I'm choking on my own blood. They all pause. One of them leans over me to check on my breathing. I grab the guy by his hair and sink my teeth into his earlobe, biting a piece off of it and spitting it out back into his face. His painful, furious screams echoes through the apartment towers. Windows are open and voices call out from somewhere above me. Some strong hands pick me up and throw me into the back of the black minivan. Just before I lose consciousness, I remember being bounced around as the minivan races through Leningrad's pockmarked street. Chapter 28 
Next thing I remember, I'm opening my eyes in a big empty room with gray walls and large pictures of Jerzinski, Lenin, and Dropov. I'm wearing nothing but my underwear, sitting on a cold metal folding chair with my hands tied tightly behind my back. The first thought that came to my mind is that Vasi was right, that these murderous people were going to eliminate me. I tried to refocus my eyes and then saw that there was a man with gray hair dressed in a KGB uniform directly in front of me at a big desk. Seeing the executive chair he's sitting in and the regal way he's drinking tea, I assume he must be the guy in charge. Good morning, Mr. Forsyth, he says. Do you want to place a call to the United Nations in Geneva or in Helsinki? I couldn't get more than a moan out of my swollen mouth. I heard some men's laughter in the background. Then suddenly a number of men are beating me all over again with their fists, their boots, and their clubs. I lose consciousness once more. How much time goes by until my next waking moment? It's hard to say because they must have drugged me to flush out all resistance. When I next opened my eyes, I was lying in the big iron scoop of a gigantic yellow bulldozer that was trundling along through rocky countryside. My hands are still tied behind my back and they have put me in some kind of big potato sack. My first thought is, okay, I understand. Now they're going to dig a hole and bury me alive with a lot of other trash. But the bulldozer stops and its massive hydraulic arms start moving the big scoop with me in it up towards the gray skies then forward to the full extent of its reach. There are voices and laughter, gears shifting and some grinding noise. Then the bulldozer abruptly tilts its scoop and dumps me on the other side of a barbed wire fence onto some cold, hard ground. Lying motionless, I can barely open my swollen eyes, but I'm alive. The bulldozer engine is shifted to idle while the voices back off. What I would discover later is that they had dumped me on the border with Eastern Europe between Serbia and Romania, about 900 miles away from Vasia's residential neighborhood in Leningrad where they had picked me up. I guess they wanted to make it an unforgettable experience. Now a man appears on the Romanian side of the barbed wire fence, a man I'd never seen before. He throws my clothes and my boots over the fence and they land on top of me. And the man crouches down and brings his face as close as he can to the fence, almost pressing his nasty brow against it. He speaks to me slowly in an angry voice as if he's spitting the words at me. You see, Mr. Luke Forsyth? We don't kill you, but I swear on the prosperity of my motherland if you ever return to our country. I will cut you up and mail the pieces back to your family. Do you hear me, you scum? Nod your capitalistic filthy head if you can hear me. I managed to move my head a little. Let us live in peace, he says. Mind your own godforsaken business. This is our land, not yours. Welterweight boxing champion bullshit. You're a lawyer, some kind of self-proclaimed Robin Hood. But you met the wrong sheriff this time. I will cut your balls off next time, I promise you. The man stands up and I hear him marching away. Car doors slam, the vehicle speeds off and the drone of the bulldozer slowly recedes. The first thing I did was reach for my boots and pull them closer to my face. I had just enough strength to pull open the heel on my right boot. Yes, there it is the goddamn list of political prisoners. With whatever muscles in my jaw that were still working, I smiled. It was a hard-earned smile that almost cost me my life. Never in my life had I smiled with so much pleasure and pain, 
From the outside, it probably didn't look like much of a smile because it was half-dead, bruised everywhere, and in unqualified pain. Nevertheless, it was a totally joyful smile. In the distance, I could just make out the bulldozer driving away. With all my strength and determination, I tried raising the middle finger on my right hand in the universal gesture of revulsion. It was for all those repressed people living under totalitarianism everywhere, and in solidarity with the unbreakable outraged spirits of all the Vasyas and Levs in Russia and around the world. But I could no longer shoot the finger because my finger was broken and seemingly disconnected from my control. I could barely wiggle it, much less straighten it up in defiance. So I shot the finger figuratively with the only insulting words that come to my muddled mind. Fuck you, Lennon. And I closed my eyes and blacked out. Chapter 29 When I next opened my eyes, it was late afternoon. All around me, some sheep with ferocious appetites was grazing on whatever grass they could find. Somewhere a dog was barking. Ladko, the young Serbian shepherd who found me, had a beautiful wife named Anya who was so pregnant it looked like her belly was about to burst. Fortunately, Anya was a nurse working at the local village clinic. That's where they took me to bandage up my head, my face, and my shoulder and put my broken arm in a cast. When they finished bandaging me, only my eyes, my mouth, and part of my nose could be seen. Gradually, over the next few weeks, I recovered, thanks to this wonderful couple who took care of me like family. One day in the beginning of my convalescence, Anya is spoon-feeding me in the clinic. I can string a few words together, but my mouth still aches. The shepherd comes by for a visit. In his special English, Ladko asks me, Which country are you from? The U.S., I murmur. He turns to his wife and explains, He's an American shepherd. They call them cowboys over there. Ladko turns back to me. Who could imagine that we'd ever come across a cowboy? You lost your sheep and end up with KGB and hands of security, right? Nothing to do with politics? I shake my head disgustedly. No words come out. Don't worry, my friend. We will take care of you. You're safe here. We own the mountains. No one can find you here. Do you know where you are? Yugoslavia, I barely managed to say. Good knowledge of geography. This is Serbia, greatest country on earth. Good people, good food, beautiful women. What else does anyone need, right? Freedom, I ask. Freedom is a state of mind, my friend. Here, drink this wine. Anya gives her husband a disapproving look but doesn't interfere with Miladko, puts the glass of dark red to my lips. The wine burns my throat, but I gulp it down gratefully. Can't thank you enough, I force from my lips. Thank Bacephalus, not us. Who? That is the name of sheep that found you. I call him Bacephalus after Alexander the Great's horse. They bring me to their home ten days later, and I curl up in the bed Anya has prepared for me by their fireplace. The days fold into nights as I sleep most of the time. Anya disappears for a few days and returns with a beautiful little boy she gave birth to at the clinic. I am soon able to sit at their table and eat meals with them like a real human being. Anya is a wonderful cook. The food they eat is farm fresh and tasty. One morning a week later, Miladko and Anya find me smoking a cigarette by the barn where the sheep are milling about. Is there something wrong, I ask. 
Nothing at all, Luke, the shepherd explains. But Anya and I have been talking all week about who's going to be our son's godfather. God sent you to us. So now, with God's blessing, I want to ask you to do us the honor of being the godfather to our son. Me? A godfather, I say. Believe me, Mladko, you don't want me as your son's godfather. You don't know me. But I'm immoral. Some way, somehow, I'm sure I commit sins every day. I don't even remember the last time I was in a church. I'm a terrible family man. It's all good, Luke, says Malatko. I was like you before I met Anya. The baptism ceremony in the thousand-year-old village church is perfect. Anya has cleaned my pants and boots, and Malatko has lent me one of his nicest shirts for the occasion. The priest motions for me to pick up my new godson, Christian. Holy water is poured over the baby's head and the infant cries out in surprise and displeasure. That's when Malatko whispers into my ear. It's a rebirth for both of you. The party at Malatko and Anya's garden is delightful. It is late afternoon, there's plenty of wine and roast lamb, and someone plays the tambura, casting a magic spell over the proceedings. The villagers dance. For the first time in a long while, I feel alive really alive. The music is so contagious, even the shepherd and his wife dance. Afterwards, they come over to me and put their arms around me to show their appreciation. Loud Konanya, I say. I don't know how to thank you for everything, but I have to leave tomorrow. We know it's time, says Malatko. We want to thank you for joining our family. Let's dance one last time together. Despite the pain, I did my best to dance a little with this lovely pair of human beings. Through them, I had officially rejoined humanity. Chapter 30 I open my eyes. The train I was riding on is running along tracks through urban areas in the northeast corridor of the states. Suddenly, in the distance, a large bay of water comes into view. I can feel the weight of the Chesapeake Bay and the ocean beyond on my shoulders. So much has happened. I haven't even had time to digest it all and make sense of it. And now, I can see my bandaged face in the flickering reflection of the Amtrak window, alternating between glimpses of the bay. I am just a ghost of myself, a sad reminder of the good people I have left behind. Next to me sits Nicholas Cooper. He's tall, with blonde hair and a funny-looking face, a little like a clown. You'd never know on first sight that he's the fiercest lawyer in human rights. He's the reason I got involved with the Russian project in the first place. Nicholas keeps staring at the crumpled list of Russian dissidents that I had given him. When he glances up at me, his eyes are full of sincere admiration. You did it, you son of a bitch, he says. You did it. He continues talking as if to himself. Doesn't look like much, does it? You'd never know that lives depend on it. I'm so very proud of you, Luke. We all are. Nicholas means what he says. He's passionate about what he does and what I do. But I don't feel the same pride that he's feeling. Far from it. Actually, I feel really bad because I left my friends back in the hellhole prison they call communism. What's there to be proud of? I feel terrible. And not because of any of the aches and pains from all the bruises and broken bones. I go back in my mind to a conversation I had with Marina in Leningrad. She told me that we never think that bad things can happen to us. As a result, 
we're always unprepared when they do happen. When bad things happen, she said we waste a lot of life denying it. And we waste even more of life saying, why me? Why did this bad thing happen to me? As if anyone else's suffering could be justified. And we waste another chunk of life saying it can't be that bad. Still another big portion of life is shoved down the sewer when we say it's bad, but it'll get better. When that doesn't work either, Marina continued, only then do we say, okay, it's bad, and most likely it'll get worse unless I move my ass right now and do something about it. By this time, I jumped in. You're in the hands of God or fate or destiny or, worst of all, blind chance. Marina asked me, where does all this unfounded optimism come from? Before I had an opportunity to respond, she continues, maybe you know, Luke, you're the American here. After all, isn't America the land of boundless optimism? Maybe it's your inherent belief in goodness, the primordial American vision of life, or is it a simple act of self-preservation, maybe even naive stupidity? Who wants more vodka, injects Vazia? I have to be honest, I say. I no longer know what I think, and that's the truth. Here's what I think. It's love, Marina says. It's love that makes us good. It's love that makes us believe in goodness and compels us to make sacrifices. It's love that gives meaning to human existence, nothing else. You can claim, I'm alive only when I love. Otherwise, you're like a blind corpse waiting for your own autopsy. Blind corpse, says Vasya, bursting into laughter. My wife has quite the imagination, no? Love is all kinds of loves. Love for your kids, love for your parents, for your woman, for your man. Just love. You can love a tree if you want. And soon you'll see that same tree rewarding you with fruits and scents. You can love a stone, too. And you'll see that stone caressing your hand when you touch it. Just love. Marina turns to Vasya and continues, This is something I've always wanted to say to you for a long time. Somehow these words were stuck in my chest and now they just come out spontaneously. Vasya stares at her with a vacant look. I didn't say anything wrong, did I? says Marina. See, Luke, see what I mean? injects Vasya. I can't even talk about love here without being afraid. Chapter 31 Afraid of love? The thought is a paradox in itself. Isn't love the most desired pursuit that every human being dreams of? Why be afraid of love? Maybe because unlike any other human condition, loving requires you to be naked, to be vulnerable, with no protection at all. And it's tough to be out there unprotected. Someone will prey on your heart and steal it, guaranteed. Because there are not too many genuine hearts left on our planet Earth. Most of the hearts now on the market are cheap Chinese knockoffs. So Vasya was afraid, and rightly so. What about me? Was I afraid too? No, I told my inner self. Yes. Definitely not. It's yes, and you know it. I don't want to confront this now, I finally murmur. Maybe just go away. As the train pulled into Union Station, I picked up my battered valise and stepped onto the platform. 
There were crowds of people all over the platform rushing along like a swarm of bees, chaotically moving towards the exit signs. I felt exhausted, just barely able to stand on my feet. I stopped, dropped my suitcase on the tile floor of the platform in the middle of all the chaos and sat down right there. The nearby sign reads, no smoking anywhere in station. I light up a cigarette just to make sure that I disobeyed all posted rules. Nicholas walks over and looks down at me. Are you all right? I hear his baritone voice say. I just need a minute. I'm going to make a quick call to my pal at the Washington Post, says Nicholas. We need to get this list published as soon as we can. You'd be okay for a couple of minutes? Yeah. I know what you need. Black, no sugar, right? Right. Don't move. Nicholas walks away. All around me, hundreds of feet are passing by. All kinds of feet, running, almost flying. Some are dragging their feet as if their bodies are just too much to bear. And there are the hesitant feet of curious kids being pulled along by their parents. But of course, what grabs my attention out of this fleet of feet sailing along the platform are all the feminine legs. Their legs moving along in short skirts, long skirts, medium-length skirts, bare-skinned or with tight-fitting hose. They are softening the air, giving life to this otherwise random flock. Just as my eyes are turning blurry and my usual brain fog is setting in, a remarkable pair of yellow shoes pauses next to me. I look up. The yellow shoes are accompanied by a purple dress. Underneath the purple dress is a sensual shape that speaks volumes to me. It was her. Hey, I scream. It's too noisy in the station. She doesn't hear me. I retract every single one of my previous statements about God, fate, and destiny. Right at that moment, I regained my full faith in all of them. And not only that, but suddenly I felt blind chance was not as blind as it pretended to be. Because right there and then, what so-called blind chance offered me, the Department of Homeland Security, with all its million CCTV cameras, couldn't accomplish in 100 years. I took a deep breath and dive into the torrent after her. She floats away from me with a stride that only goddesses can pull off. Wherever they go, they own the place. As I walk some distance behind her, my mind is frantically relooping the same scenario over and over again. I need to talk to her. I must absolutely talk to her. But as the moments pass, fear sits in. Will she even remember me? With my bandaged head, wearing Vasya's worn-out jacket and Miladko's Serbian shirt, I look more like a migrant worker who's been robbed and pushed around, just arrived in the States looking for shelter and a bottle of booze. I'm nowhere near looking like the mysterious, arrogant, and abrasive drifter that she once was attracted to. That was me then. This is me now. Pathetic I must look. Will she see that this is the same guy? Because if anything has changed about her, it's that she's more striking than ever and looks even more beautiful than before. The world must simply bow at her feet. Everyone takes notice of her when she walks by. She crosses the gigantic lobby in Union Station and walks straight into the Central Cafe. I'm right behind her and I follow her in. People line up at the cafe counter and order food and beverages and languages from all over the world. Curiously, only two people are waiting in the line without saying a word. She and I. And then for no reason at all, she turns and looks over her shoulder. Our eyes meet, but she doesn't seem to notice me. She just sees all my bandages. Ten seconds later, she looks back again. 
this time very slowly. Now she takes her time to look me over carefully. I try to smile through my bandaged mouth, and her eyes meet. And at that moment, she finally recognizes me. Her jaw drops, and she gasps for breath like a shockwave was hit her. She covers her mouth with her hand, and her face turns into a horror mask. Hi, I say. She turns back around and rapidly walks out of the cafe, almost running across the main hall of the station. I stand there, stunned like a man who is witnessing his own funeral. I should have waited to speak. I should have said something more. I should have explained better. What was I thinking? What was I expecting? That she was going to put her arms around me, hug me and love me, drop her life and follow me anywhere? How I understand other people's problems so well? But when it comes to taking care of my own shit, I'm like those brainwashed Eastern Europeans indoctrinated to my own prison. Or I'm like the frightened garage attendant who can't show his true feelings to his loved ones. Maybe I'm the brainwashed, frightened bastard, not them. At least they tried. Here, I'm walking into black hole after black hole of my own making, bulldozing myself from one emotional wreck to another without ever trying to change it. 